welcome back to Shannon's Lumber Industry Update. We're on to episode 65. And here we are, beginning of December, drawing to the end of 2021. And I feel like it's time to talk about 2022 and make some predictions. So it's kind of the theme of this episode is my predictions, granted purely opinions, but based upon some of the trends I'm seeing from my customers and my customers' customers about what's going to happen as hopefully we're coming out of round two, round three. What round of COVID are we on right now? I guess the Omicron would be round three. But still, as the world kind of starts to adjust and maybe supply chain may get back under control, what is 2022 going to look like? But first, let's talk about some stuff in the news that, well, could end up affecting some of those predictions. So the first thing is um, the, uh, oh shoot, what's it called? The COP26 summit, climate summit, happened in Scotland recently. And um, more than 100 countries got together, and this included the US. It also included China and Brazil. And I might mention that the last time we had a, a environmental summit, China and Brazil were not there. All of these countries, have agreed to a deal that is essentially aimed at and, and really ending, uh, or excuse me, reversing deforestation by 2030. And it commits nearly $20 billion of public and private funds to protect and restore the forests. So the thing with a lot of this stuff is there's not a whole lot of specifics. Um, there's, there's a lot of rah-rah and, you know, excitement and, and dollar signs being thrown around. But this pledge that they essentially put together, they're calling it a landmark agreement that includes all these countries accounting for 85% of the world's forest land. Details about that deal, which can't really be legally binding across so many international borders, how that's executed and policed, none of that stuff has been worked out yet. But a lot of people are saying this, this is a first step. Um, this similar pledge to save global forests that was made in 2014 in New York, kind of a lot of similarities, but here again, it did not include signatories China, Brazil, and Russia, who now all three are included in this. And those three countries make up a massive amount of forests. They also comprise a fair amount of illegal logging. So this this does look interesting. I know in particular in the, in the US, the Biden administration has put a lot behind this and there's a lot of talk about what the US is going to do to prevent illegal logging. And um, throwing money around is a good example of throwing money to subsidize owners of land in various parts around the world. And that's where a lot of this public and private funding goes. Where's the deforestation happening? Well, let's pay the people that own that land not to log it. And I've said this many times, one of the worst things you can do for deforestation is stop buying hardwoods because the minute you outlaw a species, that forest becomes worthless. And the person who owns that land says, well, now what do I do? And they end up cutting it down and selling it for cattle grazing land, which is the number one cause of deforestation. There's a happy medium somewhere in there. And managed forestry is not a new idea. Uh, there's a lot of successful case studies of it. I think ultimately it comes down to economics. And when the land ends up being losing its value, or more importantly, the overhead to maintain that forest becomes so much that there are better alternatives to that landowner, that's when we start to run into issues. And certainly with supply chain issues, with labor shortages, 
the cost of logging has gone up substantially. Not only, not to mention the cost of actually getting those logs somewhere to a sawmill or from a sawmill to a distribution point is a whole other issue. So there are some serious pressures and this political move and, and money being thrown around saying we're going to end deforestation, there is a, there's some interesting things. And don't get me wrong, I'm all for the environment. You know, yeah, you may think this guy works in the lumber industry, he's against all this stuff. Most of us in the lumber industry are excited to see better regulation. Because as I said, there are a lot of case studies that prove that managed forests and silviculturally sound concessions are the wave of the future. If we can get everybody behind that, then the whole thing will work. The problem lies in the illegal logging side of things and the folks that say, well, we're not going to follow that. We're going to sneak in there, cut some trees down, take them out and flood the market with um, the ill-gotten lumber. So if we can get everybody batting for the same team and following a sustainable harvestry model, uh, not only can we end and reverse deforestation, but we can build a really healthy lumber market as well. Anyway. Moving on from that, <clears throat> I got this interesting um, message from, from Matt Cummel <clears throat> about how one little metal plate messed up the entire lumber and construction trade. We've heard a lot about the supply chain crisis. We've heard a lot about spiking lumber prices, but this tiny little metal truss plate, and I, I know you've seen them, it's basically a rectangular plate with a whole bunch of rectangular holes in it that's used to tie together trusses and the basic construction of stick frame housing and even commercial establishments. That little 80 cent plate basically became unavailable, became almost interminably backordered during COVID. And it's one of those situations where there's only like one or two companies in the world that manufacture this plate. And the plate is so simple, it's not like there's a lot of competition for it because how are you gonna make it better? How are you gonna make it faster? It's a bit of galvanized steel with holes punched in it. Basically, once you figure out how to mass produce it, the market's yours and you essentially have a monopoly on it because no one can break into that market and say, I can make this substantially cheaper. There's, there's nothing to it. So really, very few sources for this, but it's never been a problem supplying the massive demand for this single little truss plate, which is, <laughs> one might even say, literally the linchpin of most stick frame construction. Well, when those became unavailable, the lumber industry started shipping out lumber and the construction guys were sitting there sitting on stacks of lumber thinking, well, we can't do anything because we don't have the truss plates. But they kept bringing lumber in, knowing, you know, seeing what the, the prices are doing and seeing what the availability was like. So many of these builders started turning their construction lots into lumber storage lots. And lumber started to pile up, but there was still no construction happening because the truss plates were missing. And that, and then of course, lumber prices began to skyrocket at that point as shortages became um, evident in that particular market. But the whole thing just screwed everything up. And it's really funny. It's an interesting article that I will... Uh, I'll post a link to, although I believe it's a subscription link. Uh, I'll have to check. But long and short of it is, one 80 cent metal plate could be the cause for a lot of problems in the construction trade. Kind of fascinating. Thanks for that article, Matt. I really did uh, enjoy reading that. It gets heavy under the economic theory uh, at that point. But uh, really, when we start talking about the supply chain crisis, it's the butterfly effect everywhere. One little metal plate screws everything up. So, speaking of screwing everything up, on November 26, the uh, United States government voted to double the softwood tariffs on Canadian lumber. 
So uh, let's see, uh, right now, uh, well, prior to November 26, the tariff was 8.99% on Canadian woods. It is now 17.9, and actually it's a little bit higher than that because it is based um, on a company by company basis. The philosophy here, as it's always been, is the Canadian government does subsidize several of these companies and the U.S. government maintains that, well, that's unfair practice because the U.S. sawmills uh, can't compete with that when the Canadian sawmills have these subsidies. You know, and, and it's so funny because people start pointing fingers at specific administrations. You know, now the Biden administration is dealing with it and the Trump administration was dealing with it and the Obama administration was dealing with it. The Herbert Walker Bush administration was dealing with this, folks. This goes back to the 70s. Every administration since then, there's been this, this Canadian-U.S. war uh, between lumber mills, and it just continues to rage. However, on the heels of COVID, on the heels of labor shortages and supply chain shortages, there are a lot of sawmills that are just done. You know, and it's not like they're going bankrupt they're just owned by folks who are getting up there in age and said, you know what, I'm just going to close my doors at the end of this year. You know, I'm 70 years old or I'm 67 years old. I'm just done fighting. I don't have the energy to continue anymore. So they're just shutting it down. We've spoken with um, a couple of our contacts um, in uh, several of the, the lumber buying uh, coalitions. And many of them are saying, look, 10, 15, 20 of the sawmills we do business with are closing at the end of this year. We're talking like four weeks from now, folks. These are sawmills that really specialize in Western red cedar and Alaskan yellow cedar, both hugely popular, hugely in-demand species. At the same time, there's a huge push in British Columbia from the Canadian government to stop logging both of these species. A lot of the lands with the older growth trees are being turned back over to the indigenous people which you got to like that. But now the Canadian government is saying, hey, we will pay you, the whatever the local tribe is, not to harvest those trees. Because of course, at least in the United States, the Native Americans have a history of getting their land back and putting a casino on it. So uh, I don't know if that, that's what happens with Canadian indigenous peoples or not, but essentially the Canadian government is going to pay them and say, please don't harvest these trees. Let's protect these forests. So areas that have long been logged for Western red cedar and Alaskan yellow, um, they're just going to be shut down. Moreover, many of these forests and softwoods tend to grow better um, in clumps. Um, clear cutting is actually a viable uh, harvestry method when it comes to softwoods because they grow. It's harder to get softwoods to take root and to get established in an existing forest, not like hardwoods. Softwoods do better getting a lot of light. In other words, clear cutting, they broadcast seed everything just like you would seed your lawn. And the softwoods grow in, in very, very tight clumps. And you know, mother nature weeds out the ones that don't survive and eventually they grow up into a forest. They all grow at kind of the same rate. Uh, drive through any softwood area. I remember seeing this in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. You drive along and you get these like stair-step forests where the forest on the right-hand side is only three feet tall. The forest on the other side of the road is six feet tall. And then quarter mile down the road, suddenly the forest just abruptly jumps from six feet tall to nine feet tall because they all have been um, seeded at the same time and the whole forests are growing in essentially like farmland. So anyway, as these areas of British Columbia are being reseeded for Western Red and Alaskan Yellow, 
they're also putting Douglas fir into the mix. Well, Douglas fir is taking root and essentially crowding out the cedars. Um, Douglas fir, in some respects, can be a more desirable species used in a much wider variety of products, just from structural all the way through to, you know, aesthetically pleasing CVG siding, things like that. <clears throat> so now the forests are almost self-selecting for Douglas fir. And since Douglas fir is, you know, you can sell it to a lot more places, you can use more of it. The silviculturists aren't really fighting it. Um, so Douglas fir is taken over in a big way, which is crowding out cedar and Alaskan yellow cedar. And those, both of those species, especially Western red, are hugely in demand, yet the long-term viability of them is not looking good. Add to that a nearly 20% tariff, and that's a problem. That's a real issue that with all these sawmills closing, the greater cost of Canadian softwoods, the rarity of that is becoming Western red cedar. And I say rarity, we're talking over tree growing spans here, but still it's something to look seriously to think about because man, <laughs> this is going to throw the softwood market into a complete uproar. So anyway, news that kind of contributes to some of my predictions. Lastly, Kind of on a cool side of things, uh, we talk a lot about uh, illegal lo logging and chain of custody documentation and ways to, to um, trace the chain of custody to ensure that the lumber you're buying is legal. Well, the whole cryptocurrency thing has popularized blockchain. In fact, they might have invented blockchain just for cryptocurrency. I think that's the case. And now blockchain is being leveraged across other industries. Well, there's been a major push to utilize blockchain tech in the logging regulation. And several people have um, put together the initial uh, structure and we're getting companies across the world starting to sign on. This is very cool, folks. This is going to dramatically improve the traceability from board all the way back to stump. And the inability to really hack it and to forge anything is going to pretty much make it bomb-proof to, um, to enforce. So that should be interesting. Obviously, adoption is going to be the biggest issue in this. You know, we got to get everybody on board, but I think it's a step in the right direction. You know, pair that with some of the environmental plans and the money being thrown around to subsidize uh, uh, sustainable harvestry um, and to to shut down the illegal stuff. Now, if blockchain takes hold, there will be no way to move lumber unless you've got something in the blockchain and you're not going to be able to forge something and stick it in the blockchain. So that's particularly cool. Uh, I know certain companies have experimented with it over the last couple of years, but there's never really been an organized push for it. And I can definitely see that taking hold in the next couple of years and, and really revolutionizing things. So anyway, let's move on and answer a few quick questions here. Uh, Bob wrote in and said, I'm seeing more and more finger jointed studs glued end to end down here. I don't know where down here is, he didn't say. Uh, are they safe for construction? What about doing this with smaller hardwood stock for our small projects? So Bob, what you're talking about is already being done. Uh, go to, heck, Ikea in some respects, but go to Target, go to like a crate and barrel or a pottery barn, or any furniture company that is mass producing furniture in like Southeast Asia or China. And those wide panels you're gonna see are not only glued up 
side to side, but they're also finger jointed together. And there's a lot of overlapping um, joinery going on to make those wider panels. You'll see it basically in everything. You'll see like thin rails and styles on a frame and panel door that are done the same way. Whereas essentially that furniture started being glued up and finger jointed together into one large panel, like a plywood size panel in which a CNC came along and then cut out all the various parts. So you may look at a narrow rail on a door and think, why do they finger joint this? And really it's just how it fell into the overall sheet. So this is already happening. Certainly it's been happening for quite some time in two by construction lumber because the finger joint is incredibly strong when the force is along the end grain. The max compression force of wood is incredibly high. And when you've got all those interlocking uh, fingers that come together and you're tying that stud together into a wall that's sheathed, you lose a lot of that ability to rack and to twist along the weak axis of that finger joint and the stress becomes straight down along that finger joint. So it's incredibly structurally sound and certainly could work in lumber or excuse me, in hardwood for smaller projects. It's just a matter of aesthetics, I think. Um, really, I think the only viable way to do it is to glue up sheets and then treat your project like you're starting from a sheet of plywood. But yeah, it's definitely being done in mass production now. Brian wrote in with a question about quarter sawn wood. He says, I've got a friend who's worked in the lumber industry who was the one who taught me the difference between rift, quartered, and flat sawn boards. He believed that almost no one actually quarter saws anything and that most quarter sawn material is pulled from flat sawn stock as a portion of the tree gets cut away during the process. Um, he basically hinted that furniture is such a small part of the industry, it's easier to just pick out the more valuable cuts and send everything else to the flooring plant. Some validity to that. Um, he said, I then went on to mention this idea to someone who was teaching a class and it helped me to understand and, and that it helped me to understand the difference. He immediately scoffed at the idea and said it was extremely common to quarter saw material. So I know there's no right answer here as I'm sure it happens both ways, but I'm curious if you, meaning me, have any thoughts on whether um, this person was generally correct or this is something only artisanal sawyers are doing on small scales now. So there's a couple of things at play here. Um, it depends heavily on the species. There are species in which quarter sawn has a market. Think red oak and white oak for that ray fleck. Think sapili for the ribbon stripe. Cherry doesn't really have a quarter sawn market. Walnut is starting to get a quarter sawn. It's actually more of a rift sawn market than quartered, but generally it's a very small market. There's no market for quarter sawn maple. There's no market for quarter sawn soft maple. There's no market for quarter sawn pine. Um, so you, 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 there's some validity to this original friend who said nobody does it because they may not be sawing white oak. They may not be sawing red oak and they probably aren't sawing Zapili if they're a domestic um, sawmill. So if they're just pushing out your typical domestic mill, then no. They're not quarter sawing anything. Quarter sawing is going to produce a lot more waste. It's going to increase the amount of time. Um, it just doesn't make sense. And the idea that pick out the small stuff, uh, the, the fine stuff, send it to the small furniture industry, and then send the rest to the flooring plant. Well, here's the other thing. The quarter sawn material isn't just for, floor, for furniture guys. The door and window guys are all about quarter sawn. In fact, they're way more about it than furniture because the furniture industry is so much smaller now than it was in the 1950s and 1960s. Doors and windows, just as big as they ever were, if not bigger. 
So not only are they looking for quarter material, they're looking for odd thicknesses, like nine quarter and 11 quarter. Um, so if you've got a mill that's it is producing nine quarter and 11 quarter, probably they're producing in both flat and quarter sawn um, thickness or uh, cuts, which means they sell to the door and window guys. They have a specific market that they're they're selling to. So in that case, the other person who was teaching the class is right on. There are a lot of people who quarter saw the material, but that's because they have a specific customer in mind. They're not sawing random width, random length, quarter saw material. They're fitting a specific specification from a specific customer, i.e. a door guy who needs nine quarter material that's quarter sawn completely, like no, no deviation of the growth rings past like 85 degrees, six inches wide and nine feet long in order to make eight foot doors. Um, the flooring guys don't really like quarter saw material. They take whatever's left over and they, as you said, everything else goes to the flooring plant. The furniture guys, they're such a small industry, they're pretty much just buying random width, random length, rough sawn material. And if they need quartered for something, they're selecting it out of the wider flat sawn boards. So the answer is kind of both. Lots of people are specifically quarter sawing and a lot of people don't bother because it all depends upon the species and the customers they have in mind. And then finally, I got a question from Zachariah. Um, he says, I uh, uh, love the podcast. Just found out about it three weeks ago and uh, while uh, searching for plywood and found a three-part series. Good. That's useful. Good to know. Good SEO point. Um, I've since gone back and listened from the beginning and I'm wondering about SAB Wood. At my hardware dealer, they have FAS, SAB, Skip Plane, S3S, and a few others. They have a sign that kind of explains what FAS, Skip Plane, and S3S are, but not SAB. Right now, we are lucky that the hardware dealer is still here and open. They're busy, but barely hanging on, so the employees, while pleasant, are mostly rushing. Uh, so, in other words, I have not felt comfortable asking, especially since my purchase is quite small, and this is something that maybe you could set some light on. So, first of all, if you're spending money, you should ask the question. Um, if they're going to give you problems, uh, I'd find another lumber yard, but if it's the only one, I understand the point. I've been there. I've absolutely been there. You, you feel overwhelmed. SAB means select and better. Um, according to the National Hardwood Lumber Association NHLA grading standard, FAS is 83% clear. Select is 80, or excuse me, FAS is 83% clear on both faces. Select is the next grade down, which is 83% clear on one face. So when you have select and better, it's generally not quite enough to meet the FAS. It's not 83% clear on both faces. Maybe it's 90% clear on one face and 70% clear on, on, on the other face, which technically makes it select because it meets the FAS grade on one face, but it doesn't meet the FAS grade on the second face. So it's select and better. You can also have like 83% clear on one face and like 2% clear on the other face. Although I can't imagine how that would happen. That would be a really thick board for the knots to not telegraph through to the other face, to the defects to not telegraph through. But you get the point. It could be absolute like number three common on one face and an FAS on the other face and it would still qualify as select. The reason select and better came along is it was kind of a way to say, look, we're trying to go for a, a, a kind of a, a minimum grade um, 
on the bottom end of our select and better. And we have some stuff that almost meets FAS, but maybe it's 80% clear on the second face. And technically it won't be FAS, but it's pretty damn good select. So select and better is where that comes from. Good question. I love those questions direct from the lumber yard. Feel free to, to throw that terminology back my way, guys. I'm happy to, um, to uh, shed some light on it because that's just the tip of the iceberg. There's a whole lot more um, kind of weird terminology that gets thrown around. So now that we talked about all of this stuff about uh, legislation and shortages and things like that, let's make some predictions for next year. So over the last 10 years, there has been in North America, the lumber yards and the lumber distribution yards, and even the users, the contractors, the manufacturers, there's been a strong push towards exotics. And the internet has truly democratized the lumber world and made species, really obscure species from far flung corners of the world suddenly available. Um, I remember when I was up at um, Bell Forest Products up in uh, Ishpeming, Michigan, walking through their aisles, like they have species that I've never heard of before. They've got, um, you know, snakewood from Suriname, but then they have like secondary and tertiary species from Suriname that I've never heard of before. And the, the, the ability to sell that online like Bell Forest does has opened up so many different species to everyone all around the globe. And it's exposed a lot of people to different things. And as there have been there has been regulation brought to bear on one species, genuine mahogany is a good example of this. Immediately to fill that void, there came Udali, there became um, Sapili, and uh, a lot of other Indonesian reddish woods hit the market at the same time. So a lot of door and window guys that really loved the mahogany. Um, began switching to Sapili, began switching to Udali, and the market shifted around that. And then the market said, okay, well, we don't want to be caught with our pants down should something happen to Sapili. You know, we just shifted, we just managed to convince them to move from genuine mahogany. Um, so what happens if something goes wrong with Sapili? So they begin looking at other species and new and different species start coming into the market. You see, you start to see Canberra showing up on decks and Canberra showing up in, in um, uh, manufacturer. Uh, Balao starts showing up in a bunch of different uh, areas. So because of this, there's been a general shift towards exotic lumber. And you find a lot of the North American mills and the North American retailers and wholesalers are skewing exotic. And you might see 60% of their stock is exotic and 40% domestic. And then it shifted to 70-30. And in some instances, I'm seeing 80-20 now, where there's so much more exotic and frankly, it's because the grade is so much better. These tropical woods don't really have sapwood, or if they do, it's very little. The trees are really, really big. They don't have much in the way of growth rings because it's essentially the same climate kind of all year round. Certainly there are growth rings, but they're, they're nearly invisible because you don't have the dramatic density differences with early and late growth. It's kind of all early growth all year round. You're able to get you know, heavy thicknesses, you're able to get really wide widths, you're able to get super long lengths with almost zero defect throughout. It's a really, really attractive um, commodity when you're talking about moldings, millwork, door and window, where you need long lengths. So naturally, exotics have kind of taken over. The domestic mills have kind of been shunted back to a commodity side of things where they're just barely scraping by. Um, 
more and more mills have started to bring more transformation in-house, where it used to be the sawmills would saw it and ship it out green. And just 10 years ago, we were bringing in probably, I don't know, 80% more green than we are today. Um, and we were drying in our own kilns. More and more of the sawmills said, look, we're going to do the drying ourselves because then we can charge more. You know, we've done more of the work. And that was fine with us because we were still doing a lot of uh, drying of the exotic stuff. The exotic stuff maybe was coming in and under European standards and it was still a little too damp and it needed to be redried. So we were using our kilns for the exotic stuff and we were fine to bring in kiln dried domestic material. Then the sawmills started saying, the domestic sawmills started saying, okay, well, what if we start straight line ripping it? What if we start skip planning it? What if we start sending more transformed stuff? And that again, added value, added a little bit to their bottom line and allowed them to make a little bit more profit and kind of hang on a little bit more. Well, now we are looking at all the stuff at the beginning of the show. The fact that more and more of the rainforests of the exotic, uh, producing forests are going to be regulated. There's going to be a lot more money thrown to say, don't log that, leave that alone, reducing the overall supply, which puts that demand back on domestics. Plus the rising cost, there are a number of species that have been hinted at going on the CITES Appendix 2 list for several years now. Several have landed on the convention to be voted on and then kind of got taken off at the last minute because of some political gerrymandering, um, those species continue to pop up um, for the CITES convention and they're going to get voted on, folks. I'm not going to go into which species I'm talking about, but there's three or four at the top of my head that are mainstream species that are probably going to get CITES listed, if not in the next year, within the next five years. The prices on some of these species are so high and the cost to bring them into the country now due to the shipping crisis is up like 3,000% that should regulation be rendered, they're gonna be priced out of the market. Immediately people are gonna lose interest in these species because it's just gonna be beyond comprehension to suddenly be paying 380 a linear foot for something and suddenly it's gonna be 850 a linear foot. They're gonna disappear or they're gonna turn into something like teak that is so incredibly expensive that it's a very, very, very select market that's buying it. So all the folks that are using these exotic species now are going to turn back to domestics. The supply chain crisis and the logistics crisis has already pushed people back toward domestics. I've seen it amongst my customers and my customers' customers in the last six months, dramatic swings. Um, for instance, uh, this all I was talking about with the Western Red Cedar kind of pinch we've turned towards Cyprus and we've been pushing a lot of our customers towards Cyprus. It's grown here in the USA and it's available all over the South. And we brought in several truckloads of Cyprus and sold it over the course of about two hours. Uh, we're bringing in more truckloads and they're already sold. Before they've even landed on our yard, they're already sold. People are seeing, I can replace my Western Red Cedar with Cyprus using a domestic product. I don't have to pay the tariff prices. I don't have to pay the massive sh um, shipping costs. I don't have to pay um, all of the um, um, the Canadian, ex not not just the tariff, but the, the the customs and all that stuff that comes across the border that adds to the cost. And Cyprus is taking off. And we're looking at a lot of other domestic species that are doing the same. We're seeing a huge resurgence in walnut. And here's the interesting rub. Not only are people shifting back towards domestics, but there's a huge amount of specialization happening in the domestics. 
So earlier, we were talking about some mills quarter sawn and some don't. And I said that walnut is starting to gain a market in the rift and quartered side of things. The, the walnut is beautiful to begin with, but if you've ever seen a rift walnut board, it is gorgeous. And people have caught on to this and people are starting to specify rift and quartered walnut. Um, white oak has a massive market now, not just for quartered, but specifically for rift. That straight grain rift is starting to replace the uh, clear vertical grain um, softwoods that are coming out of Canada. Clear vertical grain hemlock, CVG Alaskan yellow, CVG Western red. Certainly it's apples and oranges when you're talking about white oak to a softwood, but you can get that beautiful clear vertical grain that's very attractive in white oak and red oak at a fraction of the cost and take out all the tariff and all the transportation stuff, and it's even cheaper in the long run. So not only is that push toward domestics happening, but we're seeing people saying, okay, well, what other domestics? What are the tertiary and even secondary species that might fly? We're starting to see some growth in the black locust market. We're starting to see some growth in all of these urban loggers and these reclaimed urban trees. People are getting exposed now because it's very hot, it's very in vogue, it's very trendy. So a lot of architects, a lot of interior designers are getting exposed to, well, the clear one that everyone thinks of immediately is reclaimed barnwood. You know, the, the whole reclaimed thing has a huge growth, but then there are urban loggers coming in saying this isn't reclaimed, but this was destined for the pulp mill or for the grinder and turned into mulch. And this was taken down from the city streets and kind of has the same story and provenance as that barn that's 300 years old. This tree grew on Main Street for the last 60 years. You know, people, you remember parades passing under it. You know, the, the story that is adding to the value of it, adding to the, the, old, the bottom line price tag, but the re, reusability, the renewability story as well. So now we're seeing people that have exposure to things like catalpa, to sassafras, to any number of different maple species, to variants in cherry, um, a lot of different oaks that are, are popping up, mesquite, believe it or not, mesquite. I've seen it specked on several instances, a tiny little shrub, essentially. <laughs> I shouldn't disrespect mesquite. It's more than a shrub, but anybody who's seen a mesquite tree wonders, what the heck? Hornbeam is starting to become huge again. We're seeing um, the same kind of specialization in the softwoods as well, in the domestic softwoods. And I'm starting to actually see differentiation between pine. It's not just pine anymore or just northeastern white pine. I'm seeing people looking for jack pine, for Scots pine. Crazy, but they're also looking for CVG, clear vertical grain. And they're specking the grain. They're specking the cut, not just the species and the thickness. So this specialization is not just bringing new species to bear, but it's bringing whole markets of specialty cuts like quarter sawn, like rift, or live edge. Slabs is another thing. Now slabs I see dying off, but that's a kind of a, a precedent setter. We've already seen these wide live edge things come into vogue and starting to fall out of vogue, but we've also seen that they're available. Like you can through saw, you know, these urban loggers using a wood miser or whatever can through saw these boards. They sell the slab and the manufacturer is ripping it into parts that they need. And they're using more of that variegated grain, more of what we would traditionally call defected grain or figured grain because they have access to it from these urban loggers. So my prediction in the next year 
is these urban loggers are gonna to start to take off and they're gonna to have to start to figure out how to up their production because the demand is gonna come at them hard. And the small mom and pop shops running a you know, mobile wood miser, those that can figure out how to adapt and how to take more and more of the logs. Everybody I know that has taken uh, a partnership with a local municipality has to eventually like turn off the faucet because the municipality is just throwing logs at them like a fire hose. And they eventually say, look, I don't have any more room. So the law, the urban loggers that say, okay, I'm going to buy some land to use as a log yard and I'm going to buy two more sawmills and they're not going to be mobile. They're going to be big beasts that hang out back at the log yard and they're going to just run all day long. I'm still going to have my mobile sawmill that I can take to people's yards and pull those unique yard trees because that's going to be a unique offering that's going to grab the eye of an interior designer, of an architect. And instead of this kind of commodity market where people are specking lumber and they want it to all look the same. That's always been a real issue because people are looking for perfectly clear, perfectly vertical grain because it all ends up looking the same. Well, wood's not plastic, folks. People are starting to recognize that now. And this reclaimed barnwood thing has brought into vogue the different grains and the different appearance and the defects that normally were not acceptable now are not only acceptable, but sought after. So a sawmill that can have two and three uh, bandsaw mills running all the time, pulling these municipal trees, pulling these yard trees, but then also the ability to go to a yard and take that one-of-a-kind 80-year-old cherry and do quarter saw that cherry. And maybe it's not just black cherry, maybe it's choke cherry, maybe it's a, a, a different variety of cherry. I've got one in my backyard that I still haven't quite definitively identified, but it's like one of three unusual like oriental type cherries. Um, oriental sycamores. Um, sycamore as, as itself has a market in Cortison. Beautiful kind of lacewood looking appearance. But what that also brings forth is a whole realm of sawmills that specialize in the drying of these specialty woods. We're gonna see an explosion in vacuum kilns because it's gonna be the safest way to handle multiple species in the kiln and heavily grained and crotch figured type species as well. Look at my buddy Matt Cremona has been using a vacuum kiln from his buddy in order to dry those really thin slabs. So all of this really, really specific, highly specialized gear, highly specialized cuts and, and unusual, yet not rare, species. You know, there's nothing there's nothing rare about sycamore. It's rare in in lumber yards now, but it grows everywhere. I've got four of them in my backyard and there's probably 300 of them in view of my front door. The the species is not rare. It just doesn't get sawn up much because there's not that much of a market. Well, now people are turning back and looking at domestic species and looking for something different, just like they were 10 years ago, 20 years ago even, with exotics. And you started to see people specking zebra wood and macassar ebony. And they were specking veneers because of the you know, highly valuable nature of things like macassar ebony. And the, the architects and the designers were trying to be different and pushing the envelope by using this tiger wood or this zebra wood or this snake wood veneer. Well, now they're doing the same thing, but they're doing it closer to home. They're pushing the quarter sawn sycamore. They're pushing, um, I, I saw I saw sassafras specked the other day. What a great species. Um, I saw hornbeam stairs being specked recently. So these are my predictions. And 
If you can't tell, I'm really excited about this. I love exotics as much as the next guy, but me personally, in my own hand tool shop, I've always been a domestic guy. I absolutely love walnut. I love cherry. I love soft maple. And those are the woods that I actually work with the most. The teak and things that land in my shop land there because I work for one of the largest importers of teak in the country. Um, and I end up with pieces here. The teak is a great wood to work, but my God, it's expensive. And don't even get me started on the regulation and the genocide that's happening in Myanmar. So that species is, is on its way out. We've talked about that in a previous episode when I talked about Iroko. But now people are going to start looking for ways to solve the teak Iroko problem domestically. What species can we use domestically and maybe add a little bit of color into the mix in order to mimic that? And I already know one boat builder who is starting to dye and to paint their tow rails to make them look like teak. And they're not teak. <laughs> I won't name any names, but I'm supplying them domestic lumber um, for that. Here we go again, back the domestics. So this is extremely exciting to me. There's part of me that's like, you know, that made in America kind of pride that I think, hey, now it's grown in America. The question is, <clears throat> can we, can our infrastructure support this? Can our infrastructure step up to the demand? Because the domestic infrastructure for hardwoods has kind of fallen into the same old thing they've been doing. And for many, for, for up until like the recent spike in COVID lumber prices, the cost of red oak was within pennies of where it was in the 1950s. White oak was the same. Poplar was the same. The domestic market has pretty much plateaued and it's been on a very, very, very slow incline. Granted, it spiked during COVID. We will probably see some of that return. As I said in previous episodes, it won't return to pre-COVID prices, but it'll drop again. But if we start to start specking different cuts, different grains, different... Um, um, grades of the same domestics, we're going to see this subset of pricing. And of course, pricing is going to spike just like you would expect. Quarter sawn white oak is always more expensive than flat sawn white oak. But now if you start specking rift sawn white oak, and I can't have any quartered in here, I need 100% rift. And when I say rift, it's got to be 45 to 65 degrees to the growth angle. And if it's above that or below that, I won't take it. So now you've got a sawmill that's culling through lumber, maybe going through 5,000 board feet in order to get the 1,000 board feet of rift that meets that spec. The rest of that lumber, the stuff they culled out, the 4,000 that they culled out, there's got to be a market for that. And the exciting part is, if there's more focus on domestic, there ought to be a market for that byproduct now. Moreover, the, the unusual stuff, I keep throwing catalpa out. For some reason, that's one that keeps sticking in my head. But the, the sassafrases, the sycamores, um, we might actually start to see them as accent pieces. We might see them as feature walls and things like that. We might start to see veneer quality stuff coming out and domestic plywood laying up in a variety of species. A lot of this could be a long way off. And, and that into things like the plywood side of things coming, I think is is five to 10 years out. But I do think in 2022, we're going to see a shift and maybe we lose 10% of the exotic and we 10% back in favor of the domestics. But I think the pendulum is starting to swing back that way. And it's going to be really interesting to see how that plays out. I, for one, am really thrilled to start seeing some of the beauty that comes from our domestics when we saw them for quartered or we saw them for rift or we don't saw away all the defect, or we specifically seek 
the natural grain in a tree that grew in someone's yard. Um, it changes us from, you know, hundreds of thousands of board feet of the same looking wood to short runs and limited edition type stuff. Now, the minute you say limited edition, the price starts to skyrocket. So don't get me wrong, folks, things are going to get expensive. But if when you go to a lumber yard, you don't just buy cherry, but you have eight different types of cherry or different cuts of cherry that you can buy, you'll start to see that specialization in the local yards, which could be really, really good. The margins are going to go up, but you're going to be able to go and really pick what you need. And you're actually going to have some recourse for some domestic lumber instead of you just get whatever's available. That, to me, is very exciting. So that does it for me in this episode, folks. Go buy some hardwoods, but go buy some domestic hardwoods. Investigate what's in your neck of the woods. And maybe you've got a sawmill that's close by that's actually sawing a domestic species you've never heard of before. And you might be really shocked to find out there's some really cool stuff that can compete with the exotics, not only in durability and workability, but absolutely in beauty. Go buy some domestics, folks.